unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. No Sunday excites me more than this one. Not because all your hopes of spring have been dashed. <laughs> and not because we said in the psalm, the snow praises the Lord. I don't know if you caught that. Snow and mist praises the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. No, two reasons why I love this Sunday more than any other. The first is the old Latin name for the Sunday after Easter. It's Quasimodo Geniti. By the way, character from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo. He is named after today. So there's your trivia for you. You've learned something at church, but hold on, there's more. Quasimodo geniti, it's Latin, it means as newborn infants. And as is typical for the Sundays of the church here, the old names, they are typically taken from the introit. So that's what we said, 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn infants, quasimodo geniti, long for the spiritual milk of Christ. Which is really the second reason why I love Quasimodo Geniti so much. And that is because today really presents the world with what she needs. The world is desperate for the milk of Jesus Christ. They are desperate for the gospel. The world is desperate for something real. And nothing is more real than the crucified and resurrected body that St. Thomas saw and touched. Now I'm going to make a little bit of a book recommendation. First of all, you should always read the Bible. So if this comes at the detriment of reading your Bible, don't read it. But in supplication to that, you should read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you've been a while since you've read it, read it again. His arguments are especially pertinent to our world. Now, a little bit of history behind the book. Winston Churchill asked Lewis to do some radio chats on the BBC in the 1940s during the Second World War. And the reason Churchill asked Lewis to do this was because he saw his people struggling with despair. In the face of a world war that was so horrible, people were losing hope. They did not find meaning. They were no longer finding purpose in this world. And so he asked Lewis to come to a chat and give a defense of Christianity to give people hope. And that's exactly what Lewis does. And the chats, then, become the book, Mere Christianity. Now, the whole book is good. Perhaps you should read it sometime. But it starts off like this. It's especially memorable. See, Lewis says, You guys ever noticed how every society, in every time, has had the same laws, has had the same morals, essentially following the Ten Commandments. I'm sure it's a little bit twisted because of our sinful human nature, but pretty much every society has the laws, don't steal, don't murder. Of course, there are exceptions, but they are the exceptions that prove the rule, because these societies, they're savages and they are universally condemned. And we know this because if you want to say that somebody is evil today, who do you compare them to? Almost without fail. You say, that person is like Hitler. Right? We do it all the time. Now why? It's because we all know, except for those who are truly sick and demon-possessed, we all know that what Hitler did is evil. We innately know it. And then Lewis asks, where did that innate sense come from? Who put it there? Of course, the answer is God. He baked it into creation. Now this is sometimes called the moral 
proof of God's existence. The fact that we have natural law proves a lawgiver. Paul talks this way. This isn't strictly a secular book or a book outside of the Bible kind of a thing. Paul says this. He says, the fact that we have creation proves that there is a creator. In fact, he'll take it so far in Romans 1, and he'll say, it's so obvious by God's creation who God is, that sinners are without excuse. People who don't believe, they are without excuse for not believing. We do well to use these kind of arguments. We need to. American evangelicalism's problem is that they have aimed for the heart while totally disregarding the head. But if we disregard these type of arguments, if we disregard the intellect that God has given us or the reason, well then church becomes an emotional blob who gorges herself on ice cream and binges Gilmore Girls every fall. Okay, the more and more that we can present Christianity as the reasonable and the rational explanation for the universe, the better off we will be. And so it is easily demonstrable that God exists. That's obvious. At least it should be. Now the question then becomes, which God? This is what Quasimodo Gemini is all about the Sunday after Easter. This is Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. We need to insist on real things. This is how we answer this question. Which religion is true? Okay, it's got to be the real one. Thomas is not a bad guy. Okay, stop giving Thomas such a bad rap. I'm sure he doesn't mind being called Tom, doubting Thomas as long as you believe. But Thomas just doesn't want to believe a lie. He wants to make sure that the faith is true. And that is admirable, especially in a day like ours. And so today we are talking about real things. Okay, first, real peace. Second, real forgiveness. And third, all of that is based on the real resurrected body of Christ. So first, real peace. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then two verses later, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And then five verses later, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, well, What do you think he said? <laughs> he said, Peace. If Jesus says something one time, that's enough. Okay, just listen to it. If he says something twice, get out your highlighter, get out your pencil, underline it. If Jesus says something thrice, put it on a banner. Okay, make no mistake about it. Jesus comes in peace. Now the Jews locked themselves, uh, the disciples locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews on that first Easter, but they had every reason to be even more afraid of Jesus. Okay, Jesus can destroy the body, yes, but he can also destroy the soul. They had every reason to be afraid of Jesus. They had abandoned him. And yet Jesus comes in and he says peace three times. Saying, don't be afraid, guys. The war is over. The ruler of this world, the devil, he has been judged. The strong man, he's been bounded up. You used to belong to the dominion of the devil. But now Jesus has set you free. You have peace with God because of Jesus' cross. And if we have peace with God, who really cares if the world is at war with us? Okay, so many Christians are so pessimistic, so cynical, so totally dejected when they look out in the world that they say things like, oh, gee, things are so bad, no way to recover from this. The church is never going to survive. 
Well, if you have an attitude like that, you're probably right, okay? Not, pessimism not only makes you unlikable, it often tends to be self-fulfilling. Yeah, I know things are bad, okay? I watch the news, I know what's going on. And to make things worse, you live busy, complicated lives. You don't know which way is up, you don't know who's mad at you, what you can say anymore, you don't know the financial situation, what bank is going to collapse this week or next week. And to top it all off, you're not sure if you have to switch from Bud Light to Miller Light now. And that's really bad because both options are not totally attractive. So yeah, things are messed up, I get it. But so what? We have peace with God. Do you know that peace is the most used word in the liturgy? Okay, make no mistake about it. At church you have peace with God. You are his co-workers. God works in you and through you. And that should make you have a confidence unlike any other. If God is for us, who can be against us? So don't despair. We have peace with God. When's the last time you invited somebody to church to hear that Peace. Jesus brings peace. Have confidence in that. How does he bring that peace? Well, that brings us to point number two, and that is that Jesus brings real forgiveness. Now, step number one is always identifying the problem. You've got to identify the real problem. Now, this is just an illustration, but it's pertinent. It really gets at what we're doing. We are never going to solve the mass shooter problem in this country if we don't solve the problem of the family. But we are unwilling to do that. The problem is a lack of fathers. And if we're not willing to identify the real, the real problem, the real root, we're just blowing hot air. I mean, really, it's a sin problem. It always has been. That's the problem. It is sin. Once we identify the problem, the breakup of the family, or in general, just sin in general, we will identify the solution which is restoring us back to how things used to be. We have a moral problem. That is, we started off in paradise, we were perfect, and then we fell. And so the solution is to restore us back to how things were. Now this restoration is called forgiveness. And at church, you get forgiveness, real forgiveness. Like, really. <laughs> Pastor is not just blowing smoke at the beginning of the service when he says that he forgives you of your sins. This is what Jesus has given the church to do. This is one of her most important functions. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this is often called the office of the keys, and is a good, helpful picture to have in your mind with how forgiveness works. Sin is like a chain around your neck. You got this big old lockbox, and Jesus has given the church the keys to unlock that chain, to forgive you, or, secondly, to keep that chain on your neck, to withhold forgiveness. Both are important. Jesus gives the church the function to do both. So we must exercise it both ways. We must lock and we must unlock. Now the question is, when do we forgive and when do we withhold forgiveness? It's an important question because Jesus tells us to do both. The answer is repentance. We forgive repentant sinners. We say no to unre unrepentant sinners so that they will repent and receive forgiveness. The fact is, the church wants to forgive everybody. We really do. We want to forgive the liars. We want to forgive the cheats. We want to forgive the stealers. And it's not just the things that you think are petty and small. We want to forgive the big sins. Forgiveness really wouldn't be any good if it didn't deal with the big stuff, would it? 
Okay, the fact is we actually do want to forgive the cohabitating couples. We do want to forgive homosexuals. We do want to forgive abortionists. We do want to forgive mass murderers. That's how far Jesus wants to take his forgiveness. Now the question becomes, do you want that forgiveness? Do you want to hang on to those titles? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is especially pertinent to the argument. And these words are very clear. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. And so stop hanging on to those titles. Don't hang on to those titles. Repent and receive the title that Jesus wants to give you. He wants to give you a new title, not any of these sinful titles. He wants to give you his title. He wants to call you a Christian. And this is the comforting thing. Paul then says, and such were some of you. He wants to forgive you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. We want to forgive. There is always hope. Even for the person who has transitioned, changed their pronouns, and want to wants to detransition but thinks there's no way I can come back to church. To that person, we say the same thing. Repent and come to Jesus Christ. And when people repent, the angels in heaven throw a party. It's marvelous. The lost have come home. And when you repent, you hear these words, you are forgiven. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now those words, they find their basis and the third point, and that is the real, resurrected body of Jesus. This is where Thomas comes in. The apostles tell Thomas, hey, Jesus came and he said peace. Thomas says, well, that's great, but I want to see the peace treaty myself. I want to read the peace treaty like Braille. I want to put my fingers into his side. Better be real. The apostles then tell Thomas, Jesus gave us the authority to forgive sins. And Thomas says, well, that's wonderful, but if I'm going to write these checks of absolution, I want to make sure that they can actually be cashed. I want to make sure that what I am preaching actually has a real leg to stand on. And that real leg is the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus. Thomas knows that if Jesus remained dead, well then we would remain dead in our sins. Thomas knows that there's going to be a church, and we are the body of Christ. And if we're going to be the body of Christ, well that first body of Christ better be living. Because if it's dead, then when we got together on Sunday morning, we'd be a dead body of Christ. And then every Sunday would be a reenactment of Weekend at Bernie's. And Thomas is not the comedic type. You remember what Thomas said after Jesus said, let's go to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. Thomas said, let's go also with him, that we may die with him. Thomas wants to die with Jesus. Thomas is not messing around. He wants to make sure that if we're a body of Christ, that it is a real, living body of Christ. And so Thomas does an audit for the church. I'm not sure what St. Thomas is the patron saint of, but I'll make a good case that he should be the patron saint of auditors because Thomas investigates 
for us. He makes sure that we have a real leg to stand on so that we can have a real church. We don't know where Thomas was that first Easter. Many have speculated, completely, completely lambasted him for missing. But I'll speculate and I'll think that uh, he was just looking for the body of Jesus. After all, it was Thomas who said, Lord, we don't know where we're going. Show us the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Thomas is completely lost without Jesus. Thomas knows that Jesus gives us his body and blood to eat and drink. He did that on Monday, Thursday. He said, this do in remembrance of me. But if Jesus is going to do that, it better be a life-giving body. Okay, the Lord's Supper is the lifeblood of the church. And so Thomas wants to make sure that that blood is still pumping in our Lord's veins. And at this church, at this body of Christ, we make a real confession of who Jesus is. So many churches have stopped saying any type of creed on Sunday that is so detrimental. It's no wonder why so many self-professing Christians either don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or couldn't articulate it simply. But Thomas really is our model because when he encounters the body of Christ, Thomas says the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed in one sentence. It is the most profound and shortest creed in the Bible. Thomas sees Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. He just said the Athanasian Creed. There is no God besides Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one apart from him. So I'm really thankful for Thomas. <laughs> you can call him Doubting Thomas if you want to. He doesn't mind if you actually believe. But he ensured that there is a real body of Christ. Of course, there is a dilemma for us. To answer the question that the hymn poses, you were not there when they crucified our Lord. You were not there when he came back from the dead. This is why John writes the Gospel. But even though we were not there, Jesus is here. Locked doors, time, and space cannot keep our Lord from coming into this space. And Jesus comes to us this morning in his humanity. And it is in his humanity that he says to you, peace. Of course, you can't see him. Peter gets at that in his first epistle, our epistle reading. And John, Jesus knows the dilemma too. And so Jesus adds these words, and he's talking about you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen.